And here's the question I want us to think about as we jump into this text. Where is Jesus now? And not only where is he now, but how do you know where he is now? And what difference does that make? Those are really important questions that we don't often ask. And we may not know the answers to. We know that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. And we know how we know that. We know that he appeared to his disciples, that they were allowed to touch him, that he ate food in front of them so that they would know he wasn't just a spirit, that he was really alive. We know at one point he appeared to 500 different people at one time. So there were numerous eyewitness accounts of his resurrection. And we know that after 40 days of appearing to his disciples after his resurrection... He then ascended into heaven. That's really where the book of Acts starts, is with Jesus ascending into heaven. But then what? Where did he go? What is he doing? What does that mean? And how do we know? Well, I'm more and more convinced that Acts chapter 2 is one of the most important and significant chapters in all of Scripture. So much of what the Bible tells us is central and essential to our faith shows up in Acts chapter 2. Not only the death and resurrection of Jesus, but also the gift of the Spirit, the ascension of Jesus, and how we are to respond to that good news of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. In our study of Acts 2 so far, we have already seen Peter tell us that the pouring out of the Spirit that the people in Jerusalem witnessed on that day, when they were gathered together, when they heard, I don't know if it was the noise they heard of the rushing wind, or if it was the sound of the disciples preaching in different languages that brought the crowd together, but whatever it was, they came together and they asked themselves, what is happening? What is going on? What does this mean? And Peter told them, you are witnessing the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel, that a day would come when God would pour out His Spirit, not just on this guy over here who's the leader, or this guy over here who's the priest or the king or whatever, but He would pour out His Spirit on all flesh, on men and women, on slaves and free, on all kinds of people. And then He proceeded to tell them that Jesus, who they knew about from His public ministry, and who's hand they had, or whose death they had a hand in, that he had died according to God's plan and purpose, and yet they had wickedly and sinfully rejected him and sent him to his death. But that that was not the end of the story, that Jesus had risen from the dead, and that was in fulfillment of prophecy. He quoted Psalm 16, which was a psalm of David about the resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. And then he told them how he knew that it wasn't, that psalm wasn't about David, it had to be about Jesus, right? Because David was still dead. David hadn't risen from the dead, but Jesus had. He was alive. And Peter and all those with him were witnesses of that resurrection. And that's where we pick it up in verse 33. I'm going to read verse 33 to 31. This is the rest of Peter's sermon on that eventful day of Pentecost. 
He said, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So Peter, where we pick it up here in verse 33, he's already talked about the death of Jesus. He's already talked about the resurrection of Jesus. Now he is talking about the exaltation of Jesus. To exalt someone is to lift them up to a high position. And what happened is that Jesus was not only raised from the dead, but then he ascended into heaven. His disciples witnessed that as well. They saw him back in chapter 1 being lifted up right into the heavens and he was uh, taken away from their sight by a cloud. And we know that he, when he ascended into heaven, what he did was he sat down at God's right hand. That is the highest place that anyone can be exalted to. That's what Peter's talking about. He's been lifted up, he's been exalted, he's been placed in the position of greatest prominence, greatest importance, greatest significance, God's right hand. And so Peter asserts that that has happened. And this is what the New Testament emphasizes this all over the place as well. In Philippians, when Paul is summarizing the the life and work of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, he talks about how how he was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So the Son of God has always existed. He's always been God. He's always been equal with the Father and the Spirit. But he humbled himself and was born as a man. And Paul says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him. This is what Peter is talking about. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Peter and Paul are saying the same thing, in other words, that Jesus has been exalted to the highest place, the highest position. And one day, everyone is going to acknowledge that. One day, everyone is going to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. In Ephesians 1, Paul puts it this way, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, 
and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What Peter is asserting, what Paul is asserting, is that Jesus, though he humbled himself as low as he could go, becoming a man, becoming obedient to the point of death, being willing to suffer the shame and indignity and pain of crucifixion, death on a cross, having gone willingly so low for our salvation. Now the Father has exalted him as high as it is possible for anyone to go. He's seated at God's right hand. He's been given the name above every name. He's exalted at the right hand of God. And Peter says, here's part of how we know that he's been exalted to the right hand. of Because nobody, nobody can see that at this point, right? You can't, you can't see where Jesus is. Now later, Stephen is going to get a glimpse. When Stephen is about to die, when he's being stoned to death later in Acts chapter 7, the heavens are going to be opened and he's going to see Jesus at God's right hand. But for most people, you can't see that, right? You can't, you can't observe it. So how do we know it? A couple of ways we know it. One way is that it fulfills a prophecy about the Messiah. The scriptures told us in advance, this is what would happen. And so if Jesus is the Messiah, this must be what happened to Jesus. That's why he quotes uh, Psalm 110 in verses 34 and 35. Another Psalm of David, just like he quoted Psalm 16 to show that uh, the resurrection Uh, was prophesied and then fulfilled in Jesus. So here in verse 34 and 35, he says, David did not ascend into the heavens, right? He just said David's in it and his bones are still in the tomb, right? He didn't ascend into heaven. He didn't ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Well, where is God's right hand? It's in heaven, right? Where is God's throne room? It's in heaven. That's where God is. That's where Jesus now is. We know that that psalm wasn't talking about David being exalted to God's right hand. Because, one, David didn't ascend into heaven. That's what Peter says. But two, it's also clear he's not talking to David. Because it says the Lord, Yahweh, God, that's the all caps Lord in the the Old Testament, God's personal name, the Lord said to my Lord, not to me. David doesn't say the Lord said to me, sit at my right hand. He said the Lord said to my Lord. Who's that? Well, Jesus quoted this psalm uh, in, I believe it's in Matthew 22, when he was interacting with the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the week leading up to his death. And he asked them about this psalm. And they were in agreement about what this psalm is about. That it's a psalm of David, that he wrote it inspired by the Holy Spirit, and that it's about the Messiah who was descended from David. But what they couldn't answer was the question Jesus asked. How does David call him Lord if he's his son? They agreed on all the rest of it, but they didn't know how to answer that question. We know how to answer that question. How can David call his son Lord? Because the Lord, the Son of God, took on flesh, was born from David's line. So he comes as a descendant of David, who is already greater than David because he's God in the flesh. So David can say both, that's my son, my descendant, and that's my Lord and my God. 
So he's not talking about David. He's talking about the Messiah, and the Messiah is Jesus. So Peter says, we know that Jesus is at God's right hand because David told us, speaking by the Spirit, this is what God would do. That he would raise the Messiah to his right hand and make all of his enemies his footstool. But there's another way that we know that this is what's happening. And this is what Peter says in the, the last part of verse 33. So he says, Jesus has been exalted. And then he says, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Is it a coincidence that 50 days after Jesus' death, that the prophecy of Joel about the pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh has suddenly come to pass? Peter's saying that's, that's no coincidence. You are witnessing the fulfillment of a prophecy that is hundreds of years old, that is now coming to fulfillment just weeks after Jesus, who you know performed signs and wonders that God did through him, who was crucified, just like God planned that he would be, who was raised from the dead, We're all telling you we witnessed that. We saw him alive after his resurrection. He is the Messiah, and now all of a sudden, here's the Spirit poured out on all these people so they can preach in all these languages the great things that God has done. How do you explain that? I'll tell you how you explain that, Peter says. Jesus is the one who's doing this. Jesus is the one who has poured out the gift of the Spirit. Jesus told us he would do this. When Jesus was preparing his disciples for his departure back in John 15, right before his crucifixion, he told them, when the Helper comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Jesus told them, I am going to send you the Holy Spirit. And he told them in Acts chapter 1, you wait here until you receive the Holy Spirit. And now they have received the Holy Spirit. And this is one of the reasons why Luke can say at the very beginning of the book of Acts, he says in my first book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. See, when Jesus died and rose and ascended into heaven, he didn't quit working. The work required for our salvation is already accomplished. That's why he sat down, because that work is done. But he is still at work in the world. He is still working through his disciples. He's working through his people, through his church. And he is working on the day of Pentecost because he is the one who is pouring out the Spirit upon his people that they might proclaim the things that God has done in languages that people can hear and understand and receive and respond to. So Jesus is no longer on the cross, suffering. That's finished. He's no longer in the tomb. He has risen. And he is no longer physically present on the earth. His ministry on earth has been fulfilled. We cannot see him, but we do know right where he is. He humbled himself to the lowest place and has been exalted to the highest place. He is at the right hand of God the Father, sitting on his throne with all of his enemies being put under his feet.
Now, Peter, when he draws this sermon to a conclusion in verse 36, he pulls no punches. Listen to what he says. This crowd of people whom he has charged with having a hand in the death of Jesus, he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. I don't want you to have any lingering doubts about this. I want you to be utterly convinced. Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So here's his concluding point of his sermon. You passed a verdict on Jesus. Guilty. Get rid of him. Kill him. God also passed a verdict on Jesus. Not guilty. Lord, Messiah, exalted to the highest place. He is the Christ, the promised one, the Savior, the King you've been waiting for. He is Lord, which means He is ruler. And since that's the word that is often used for God in the Old Testament, it's also a claim to deity, right? that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is Lord. He is Christ. You passed the wrong verdict. What are you going to do now? If you say guilty and God says not guilty, if you, say, if you say kill him and God says, I'm going to raise him from the dead. If you say get rid of this guy and God says, put him at my right hand. What do you do now? What's left for you to do now? What happens next, verse 37, it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They're not brushing this message off. Peter, you're some fanatic. You don't know what you're talking about. Your argument makes no sense. We don't believe.